John chapter 11. If you guys don't have a Bible, uh, we have some ushers. I would love to grab you one, get you one. Go ahead, keep that if you don't currently own a Bible. It's our gift to you guys. Uh, yeah, I, my wife and I got back um, last Saturday, actually, and so we were. I was at church last Sunday, uh, but I haven't preached in like three weeks, so um, it's going to be a little bit rusty today, but uh, hopefully I'll, I'll do my best, so... Um, anyways, uh, what I want to do right now is I want to just kind of jump into Gospel of John chapter 11. We've been in this uh, series going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through this entire gospel. It's kind of what we do here as a normal warp and woof or rhythm as a church is just taking the Bible, especially certain books in the Bible, just going through them and let, letting the text kind of dictate and orient and guide kind of what we do and how we, how we deal with it. So my invitation to you guys to just kind of sharpen your brain, your heart, your mind, uh, and your imagination, and I'll read in just a moment here, but I want to give a really quick little synopsis, just kind of bring you up to speed um, uh, where we've been in uh, John chapter 11. So uh, what's cool about this particular chapter, I'll just say this up front, is this kind of represents the, the movement of Jesus into the final week of Jesus' life in the story of John, as John tells us the story, which is, which is cool because we are now currently in the Easter season where we kind of tune our hearts. We're typically within the historical season, what's commonly known as Lent. It's a time of reflection, repentance, consideration of who Jesus is, uh, prepping our hearts for the great celebration that we call Easter or Resurrection Sunday. Um, so we're very excited about just using this season as a time for discipleship, to sharpen our, our, our senses, our affection, our love for Jesus. And uh, as we join the universal church, and I mean universal meaning like on the entire planet, the face of earth, people that have devoted themselves to Jesus, this is one of the things that we do. Um, what I love about the fact that we are currently in the Gospel of John is this story just kind of moves smoothly into the rest of uh, where we'll be heading uh, throughout this Easter season. So I want to give a really quick little kind of synopsis. I have a little slide here uh, about the story. I'll go through these really quickly. Number one, uh, certain characters that were part of this particular story, John chapter 11. This is an important, pivotal moment in the story of John. I'll tell you about that more in a second. So we see Jesus, Lazarus, Mary, Martha, some of these religious leaders. We'll come back to them. We see kind of within a storyline, this guy by the name of Lazarus, Jesus' friend, he falls ill. Um, and then his sisters actually seek help from Jesus. They send some emissaries or friends to go out to Jesus, representatives of the, of the Lazarus family. And uh, they're like, hey, Jesus, can you come back and hang out with your friend? He's not only sick, uh, but we, we know, Jesus, that you have the ability to be able to heal people and help him. But we're told within the story as well, kind of another bullet point here, Jesus actually delays his coming for whatever reason. We don't know this in the storyline at this particular juncture. Uh, we know now because we've already gone through this. But uh, for whatever reason, Jesus delays. And as a result of Jesus's delay, uh, Lazarus dies and he's in the grave for four days, which is very significant to the rest of the storyline. Um, Jesus then has these interactions with uh, the two sisters. Uh, Jesus displays some emotion. Again, we mentioned several weeks ago that this is one of the most profound passages, I think, throughout the entire New Testament, but especially in the Gospel of John, where he describes, articulates Jesus's expressions of emotion. I mean, if you think of Jesus or God being distant or cold-hearted or apathetic towards your pain or suffering or hardships or disappointments, he's not. He's not. And this is an opportunity for you to either continue to hold on to these false misrepresentations of, of Jesus or to flesh them out and replace them with something radically beautiful and good, which is a God who actually cares 
He's sympathetic. He's empathetic towards your pain because he's gone through this particular stuff. And then we see, lastly, uh, what we saw actually a couple weeks ago, uh, my good friend Ben uh, taught, and he specifically taught on the subject of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Now, now we get to the actual remainder of the chapter, and uh, we'll jump in. So uh, I'm going to begin by reading uh, verse 45. I'm going to go to the very end of the chapter, so just go ahead and pay attention and listen to the story. It's, it's pretty awesome. And then we're going to pray, and then we're going to begin to just take a look at, bit by bit, this entire storyline. So... John chapter 11, verse 45, says this. Let me put on my glasses here real quick. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he, had, what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees, and they told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gathered the council, which is what's commonly known as the Sanhedrin. We'll come back to that. And they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many miracles. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation, verse 49. But one of them, by the name of Caiaphas, he was the high priest that year, and he said, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole whole nation would not perish. And he didn't say this on his own accord, but he, being high priest that year, had prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. It's commonly known as the diaspora. He says, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Verse 54, Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews. And he went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up to the country, to Jerusalem, before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, Uh, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should let them know so that they might arrest Jesus. And this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Jesus, we ask you right now that you would uh, let your heart guide and direct our time together here. God, I pray that you would open our minds, our imaginations, our affections, and God, refocus our thoughts and our lives upon who you are. God, give us grace to repent, to turn, to believe. Uh, and to live for you. So help us now in this moment that we have together here. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I want to do right now is I really want to focus on kind of verse 54. I'm going to go to verse 54 first, and then we'll kind of go backwards, because I think 54 gives us a little bit of the, the subject matter that I think John's trying to take us in the narrative that he's given us. In other words, at this particular moment, the story that we just read is literally marking a radical turn in the ministry of Jesus. So up until this point, Jesus has been pretty open. Everywhere he's at, people are coming up to him and asking him for favors and help and food and healing and all sorts of things. And Jesus is openly doing these things. Like, there's, there's no question whatsoever that Jesus is really just focused on everybody else. In this moment, John tells us, from this point forward, Jesus changes his approach, um, he actually goes off into this particular region called Ephraim, 
And there he is. Uh, literally, Ephraim was kind of interesting because it was located on the border of Samaria and Judea, which was a kind of a non-Jewish region. That this is where Jesus would spend the next few days, if not a week or so, prior to uh, his his death. So by the end of the chapter, we're told that this is the Passover. So why that becomes relevant? Because again, in the bigger scheme of the Gospel of John, this marks literally the last week of Jesus's life. Like you know, um, the entire Gospel of John covers a pretty large swath of Jesus' life, but the remainder from this particular passage forward, which is, you know, a handful of, of, of chapters, it's all kind of compressed looking at this most important part of Jesus' life. So again, just from a literary standpoint, um, observing the fact that John actually focuses the majority or a very large segment of chapters upon this last week um, should leave you with this question of, is this a significant part of Jesus' life or insignificant part of Jesus' life? Hello? Very significant, right? Very significant, obviously, right? That John focuses a lot of attention and energy upon this little last segment of Jesus' life. So it tells you, um, if anything, for us as we're reading this to really pay attention because it's super important what John's going to really unpack for us over the next chapters, over the next weeks as we are finding ourselves in this particular part of the Gospel of John. So what I want to talk real first, we'll just kind of go through each one of these things. I have a, kind of a list of outlines. We'll show up there, hopefully. And, um, and that will just kind of unpack for you guys a little bit of a list as to where we're going to go. So number one, I really want to focus on this pivot of Jesus from personal, professional, outspoken, in the open ministry to now basically uh, seclusion or pulling away um, in this region of Ephraim to either hide or regroup, however you want to describe it. I don't think Jesus is doing anything from a cowardly standpoint. I just want to be clear about that at all. But there's no doubt that Jesus is nonetheless pulling himself away from the typical crowds that he had been normally accustomed to. And John wants us to be aware of that. Second thing I really want to point out is this problem of embracing Jesus as king. This becomes really clear in verses 45 through 48. I'm going to read it again. Now, it says again, many of the Jews, therefore, had come with Mary, and they had seen all that Jesus had did, and then they believed in him. And then it goes on to say, but some of them went to the Pharisees, and they told them that Jesus, what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gathered the council, and as I mentioned earlier, the council is another way of identifying. There's this large group of, or large body of uh, Jewish leaders. Uh, it was comprised, it was commonly known as Pharisees and Sadducees, maybe you might have heard of those names before, and there were typically 70 of them. This was called the Council or the Sanhedrin. This was the highest ranking um, order of leaders or elite class religious leaders in Judaism at that particular time. These were, these were heavy hitters. It'd be kind of like in modern day era, like um, a collection of cardinals within the Catholic Church, the, those that have the highest ability to make decisions, to, to uh, exercise some uh, various form of laws and edicts and whatnot. This, this is who these guys are. So there's a council that's being gathered together here. And what's really important to pay attention to what they say. Verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gathered the council and they said, what are we to do? So they're left with this question. What are we going to do? Jesus just healed this guy, raised him from the dead. What are we going to do with this? Like, we can't deny this. And what's fascinating to me, there's sometimes, especially in modern circles, this idea of like, well, we know way more than Jesus. We know there's no possible way he could have done miracles. Don't you just love modern arrogance? Just this ability, like, we know, we know. Like, how do you, how do you know? You're 2,000 years removed, A. B, like, like there are people present, eyewitnesses, not only friends of Jesus, but enemies of Jesus. 
they both alike testify to Jesus doing something. And in this context, it's pretty fascinating because not only do the friends of Jesus believe and they worship Jesus, but the foes of Jesus are like, look, we know Jesus did a miracle or a sign. What are we going to do about this? So it's a really important question. We'll actually circle back to it in just a moment because it's the very question that you have to wrestle with. Because Jesus did this, what are you going to do with it? That information, how is that going to change you? How will it impact you? So the point that I want to make is this. It says in verse 47 again, so the chief priests and Pharisees gather together. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. It's also, I think, worthy of note that the word sign is actually different than miracle. A sign typically is, is exactly what you imagine. It's, a, it's intended to point to something. It's not an end in and of itself. So Jesus is raising of this guy, Lazarus, from the dead was not intended to be the end in and of itself. It was intended to point to something beyond or greater uh, that. So the idea of a sign is not to necessarily gather around and be like, everybody gather around the sign and let's celebrate Jesus. It's to actually look at the sign and be like, what's the sign pointing to? And this sign was to be pointing to something greater, no doubt the resurrection of Jesus. Or to put it in another context, that Jesus is making this claim that he, he is, whoever he is, whoever up until this point you can think Jesus to be, he is, he, he, what, the bit of information he wants you to have about him is that he actually has authority over death. Let this sit in. Death right now in the human race is the greatest enemy and threat to everything to progress, to health, to vibrant living, to long life expectancy, to living out your 401c or whatever, you know, your retirement, whatever. Death literally is and represents the greatest threat of everything. And it's always been that way, literally from the very beginning. And, you know, again, as we continue to move on as an, an advanced, quote unquote, civilization, we're constantly wrestling with the question of how do we overcome death? How do we prolong life? How do we, you know, pump artificial stuff into our bodies so we can live, you know, 100 years, uh, 120 years, 150 years? And in these, the, the real question is how do we defeat death? That's the real question. You know that, right? How do we defeat death? And by the way, the whole health and wellness industry, you know, Botox and working out and Lululemon and looking fit and all, all of that. And again, I'm not against any of that, just so you know. Don't send me emails. But the point of all of that is an attempt to undo death because the effects of death have this impact upon your body that none of us find desirable. What, what we do find desirable is youthfulness. What is youthfulness? Well, youthfulness is the exact opposite of death. But what Jesus is claiming here, I have the power over death. What Jesus is possessing is a nuclear weapon that no one has ever seen before. It's never been on the scene of history, human history before, and he has it. He possesses it. This is, this is mind-numbing if you let it take you to where I think John wants you to see this. So the point is, is these people realize there's a problem here. Jesus presents a problem. Verse 48 tells us why. Listen carefully. If we let him go on, this is really important, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What I love about this little insight is they tell us explicitly their greatest fears. Okay, this is, this is pretty profound, because all of us, 
face threats upon our life. Rarely are we able to articulate and identify what those threats are or what the fear of loss is. These guys do it profoundly. And again, John obviously is the one who's writing the story here, so he records certain notes. But I want to go through these one real quickly. Number one, they have this threat of feeling like if Jesus really is doing this and we let Jesus go on and we don't cancel him or we don't stop him or figure out some way to, uh, to truncate his ministry, um, we will lose everybody. So really the issue is loss of influence. Then they go on to say, not only that, but the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So there's two words that are used here in the Greek. Number one, place is the word topos, T-O-P-O-S, T-O-P-A-S, sorry. And that literally means that we get the word topographical, which is kind of like this this location, this spot. So they're they're looking at their, their land, like literally we will lose our land. And then secondly, the word nation is our ethnos. We will lose our, our nation, our identity. So listen to what they're afraid of losing right now. They are desperately afraid. They, they recognize if Jesus, or I should say more importantly, because Jesus represents a threat to death itself, we will lose everything unless we either fully embrace Jesus, but then that means that we're no longer in charge. Someone else has replaced us. And we will likely lose all of our influence, lose all of our land, and lose all of our identity. So what I want you to hear really carefully, that doing business with Jesus will definitely represent a threat to your existence. I want to be really clear about this. There's no other way around this. We want a tame Jesus, to be really frank. Like in our culture today, we want a Jesus that we can control, that we can manage, a domesticated Jesus but that will never save you. It can't save you. Like, it just literally cannot save you. What we need is a raw, powerful, untamed, non-domesticated, undomesticated Jesus that can do anything, is totally free from human influence, compulsion, anything. This is who Jesus is. And he says, I will save you, but I will need you to fully trust me. And that represents various forms of death within our life. And I would even say death along the very same lines, death of your potential influence, death of your potential quest to create space and land and hold on to things and possessions, and also maybe even without question, death to your sense of your own identity. And these are things that I would say, three things for sure in our culture right now that we idolize and set apart as sacred. And to the degree that you hold on to these things and choose to hold on to these things uh, will either be the determining factor of you finding your life or losing your life. If you choose to let go of them and cling to Jesus, you will feel like you've, you're losing your life, but in reality, you'll be gaining your life. If you choose to reject Jesus and hold on to these things, you might have all of these things momentarily or temporarily until they finally expire. And then when they expire, you end up expiring with them. But the point of the matter is, this is the real existential threat or problem that Jesus poses. I want to read a real quick quote from C.S. Lewis that I found really fascinating. It's a little bit lengthy, so just go ahead and listen to it. I actually have it up on the screen if you'd like to you know, follow along. C.S. Lewis, in one of his uh, treaties, said this. He says, the more we get what we call ourselves, our true selves, our authentic selves, there's different ways in which we say it in our modern world. Uh, Sorry, the more that we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Do you realize how counterculture this is, first and foremost? And he goes on to say, there's so much of him that millions upon millions of little Christ or Christians, all different, 
will still be too few to express him fully. Here's what he's saying, is that God's aim is to express himself in humanity. How many human beings do we need to express Christ fully? I don't know, billions upon billions upon billions upon billions upon billions upon billions. Why? Because Jesus is so vast and beautiful and good. It requires millions and billions and trillions of people, human beings, bearing his image, all reflecting him rightly to do this well, is what he's saying. He says, we made them all, or he made them all, as an author invests characters in a novel, all the different people that you and I were intended to be, in that sense, our truest selves are all waiting for us in him. It is no good trying to, quote unquote, be myself without him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by, this is really important, listen to this carefully, the more I resist him to try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity, upbringing, surroundings, and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call my quote-unquote authentic self becomes merely the meeting place for a train of events which I never started and which I cannot stop. We call that the algorithm, by the way. You're wondering why I always keep getting strange ads for stuff. Those are attempts to lure your soul, take a hold of your desires, and coach you some direction. It's the the world that we live in. But they always give us this promise. I'm in control. No, really, I am in control. Now, I'm telling myself, I really am in control. Why do we keep having to reaffirm that? Because we know we're not in control. But the more we say it, on repeat, the hope would be that it becomes true. And what C.S. Lewis is simply saying, long before the domain of computers and especially the social media age, is that, no, 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 we're really not in control of ourselves the way that we like to think that we are in control of ourselves and the way in which the algorithm wants us to think that we're actually in control of ourselves. So what his solution is, he says, again, um, he says, what I would identify as my desires become merely suggestions thrown up by my physical organism or pumped into me by other men's thoughts and even suggested to me by devils. Until you have given up yourself to him, you will not have a real self. Sameness is to be found most among the most natural humans, not among those who surrender to Christ. How monotonously alike have been all the great tyrants and conquerors. How gloriously different are all the saints. This is so powerful. We live in a world today that's just like, just be yourself. Be your own authentic self. Don't let anybody else have influence over you. But then the question becomes, how do we approach that? The narrative of our culture is just dig deep into who you are, who you think you are, and live as authentically to that as you can. What C.S. Lewis is saying is actually that's a lie. The self that you think is actually yourself is really just the collaboration of influences and other people's ideas and thoughts and impressions and your own biological makeup and longings and desires that mutate and shape and change over time. But what he's suggesting is that true life, true differentness, true uniqueness comes through radical surrender to King Jesus. And I think these religious leaders realize like Jesus will pose a threat to everything that we have built and held on to and have merited. And we refuse to let Jesus do this to us. Okay, let's move on. 
Thirdly, we see this prophecy, and I'll kind of wrap it up really quickly with this. He says in verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who's the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Is Caiaphas a kind guy or a tyrant? If you said tyrant, you're right, all right? All right? Just a guy who talks to other people like that. It's probably not good, but that's what history tells us. He says, you know nothing at all. Verse 50 says, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest, that year he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation only, but also for those uh, children who are scattered abroad. So first of all, I think it's just important to note this guy Caiaphas uh, is described in the text twice here, actually, that he's the high priest that year. This is kind of an interesting little uh, nuance to just make note of. Um, According to the Old Testament passages, that when a high priest was uh, placed into a spot, a role, he was to be high priest for life. So the question is, what's going on here? Why, Why does John drop this little detail that he's the high priest for the year? Well, it kind of brings us into a little bit into the first century circumstances where uh, Jews were under the boot of Roman occupation. So they were technically not a free nation. Uh, there are all sorts of political maneuverings that were taking place and happening. So in some sense, the, the role of the high priest uh, was removed from this sense of being devoted to the Torah, the law of God and whatnot. And it kind of was sort of re fabricated to become something that was more akin to uh, Roman's desires. In other words, there's sort of this collaboration of Roman ideals and Judaism uh, as a way of sort of uh, measuring power and managing their ability to stay in control. So what ended up happening was the high priest role was kind of sold to the person at highest auction. This guy Caiaphas and his father or father-in-law by the name of Annas um, had all sorts of power, and they were ruthless. I mean, literally history tells us that both these guys, specifically Caiaphas himself, had this reputation for arrogance, cruelty, vindictiveness, spite. Obviously, he's insulting his entire collective group of what's called the Sanhedrin right here. But what John does also tell us that in this particular context, he's capable, even though he's an extremely godless dude, of prophesying. Speaking truth, which again, this shouldn't shock us that God can use anybody, but this is this is you know this is what John's telling us that this guy Caiaphas, totally godless, totally ruthless, speaks, and what he speaks is literally a word from God. And what it tells us about this, at least two things, it's this it's prophetic in at least two ways, um, both of which are. Probably, I mean, the Holy Spirit, I'm sure, is kind of working some way, but accidental in a sense where this guy is not waking up one day like, how do I to my heart with the heart and the mind of God? And all of a sudden, this just comes out. But uh, the Holy Spirit, obviously, using, working through this particular scenario. Number one, it points out to the fact that, there's, that the death of Jesus is going to be a sacrificial death. So he makes a statement that it's more beneficial for one to die than for the entire nation to die. So what's going on there? So according to this guy Caiaphas, the high priest, He's very clearly, not just hinting at, just pretty profoundly uh, pointing out that what's most beneficial for the state of Israel right now, for our nation, in other words, for us to keep the peace and for us to hold on to what we have, is to have this threat to everything go away. Get the idea. And what he's saying, John is telling us, that this is prophetic, that this was God's way. God knew from the very beginning that in order for the whole to be saved, usually requires one taking the shot. So secondly, we also see that this is probably also a hint at the sacking by Rome. In other words, 
within 70 years or a short amount of time, a period, 50 years or so, um, the Romans would come in and actually decimate and destroy the entire city of Rome. Why? Because Jesus himself would say, uh, as he weeps over the city of Jerusalem, he's like, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would gather you into myself like a hen gathers her chicks. Like, but Jesus also recognizes, but the problem with you, Jerusalem, the nation of Israel as a whole, is like, you guys are rejecting me just the way the religious leaders have rejected me. Rather than falling down and worshiping me and receiving me, you have rejected me. And Jesus says, as a result of you rejecting me, um, here's what's important to note. A rejection of Jesus is not just simply a rejection of anything that's spiritual. It's turning from the true spiritual reality and turning to alternative spiritual realities. This is what's so important to note. Again, we live in a world today that has so sold us this dream that I can, I can make choices to turn away from God, but then I can turn to whatever it is that I want to still be in control of. That's an illusion. And what we're being told within a larger storyline of the people of Israel is that by turning from Jesus, they end up turning to their own broken, violent ways, and they're turning towards the violent ways, end up leading them to the Romans revolting against them and then decimating everything. Like literally it was the, 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 the people of Israel were scattered. Their nation was crushed and destroyed out from underneath them. So the third thing I want for us to just be aware of clearly within the passage here is the prophecy that is spoken. And then th- uh, fourthly, we see this plot to Jesus. And I'll just read this in verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Again, this is where it brings us into the sort of this final week of Jesus, where we begin to see the events that would lead to uh, Jesus's crucifixion, his betrayal, his death, his resurrection. All of that is now beginning to move in a very clear, concise fashion, where Jesus knows that this is exactly what's about to take place. Then lastly, I want to focus on the fifth thing, which is this Passover celebration um, of God's deliverance. Deliverance. Um, John doesn't really tell us too much about what the Passover is. Um, he just kind of assumes that you and I, as readers, know exactly what the Passover is. But the Passover uh, is probably the most important celebration for Jews in their entire history. It's something they do every single year. It's a way of remembering God's gracious and kind act of deliverance on their behalf, all the way back to when they were a nation that were enslaved by the Egyptians. And as a result of that, God graciously delivered them, set them free. And this is their way of remembering this. Every year, um, scores of Jews would return back to the city of Jerusalem. In fact, according to uh, many scholars, there's a belief that between 100,000 to a million Jewish pilgrims would come into the city of Jerusalem for a whole week. So right now, at this particular point, this little turning point in the story, uh, the city of Jerusalem is beginning to be filled with thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of human bodies. So imagine, it just gets extremely loud and crazy, and people are having a hard time to find places to, to live. You can also imagine at the same time, there's food trucks everywhere and all sorts of sights and smells that are awesome and some that are not so awesome. But the point of the matter is, this is what's happening. It's sort of the context of what's taking place in this situation with regard to the Passover. So that being said, I want to kind of end on this because John is going to, I'll just read the remainder of this. It says, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up to the country of Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That will he not come to this feast at all? So in their minds, they're kind of trying to figure out is where's Jesus? Like he obviously left. We're not really sure where he's at. Will he come to the feast? Every good Jew comes to the feast. And so they're asking the question, will Jesus show up at the feast? What they don't know 
is yes, Jesus will show up at the feast, and yes, Jesus will show up as a feast as the main central participant in the feast. He, he will literally become the lamb that will be sacrificed. And the story gets really profound. Most of us are familiar with that, but we'll get to that when we get to that. But the point that I want to make is this as he finishes up. He says, verse 57, now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus is, that they should let them know so that they might arrest him. So this is how chapter 11 concludes, is on this note of Jesus is now shifting his entire ministry and the agenda of the religious elite now is one solution alone. Jesus must die. That's that. So I want to finish just with this final little thought in verse 47. The phrase that just, when I, when I first started reading the passage, that really stood out to me, and I want to just conclude on this because I think it's, it's worthy for us just to reflect, where he says, what are we to do? This is the religious leaders kind of dealing with the fact, well, we know Jesus did a miracle. We know this, this undeniable, Jesus raised this guy from the dead. In fact, chapter 12, they're already plotting and scheming how to kill Lazarus. I mean, think about this. This guy's been like raised from the dead, and who knows what actually he saw or witnessed, but now they're like, we want Lazarus dead because you are a living embodiment that Jesus has victory and power over death, right? So they're figuring out ways to put him to death back again. But the point is, is before we get to that, um, this is the question they're dealing with. Again, this is not an issue of like, did Jesus do a miracle? Is Jesus capable of doing miracles? Should we believe Jesus doing miracles? They're really asking this question, what are we to do with the fact that this has happened? And then he goes on to say, for this man performs many signs. And I'm going to just finish with this particular thing and ask the question, like, like, what are we to do? What are you to do with this fact? Well, as I like think through things, like, what are our options? Like, what, are, what are the options? I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a, you know, classic representative, just like you are, of, of, of an American. We want options, right? We don't like being thrown in specific binaries. You got this choice, that choice. We want options. We want a menu of items for us to think about. Well, here's, here's three of them for you. Number one, uh, you can have selective belief. And I would actually probably posit that this is the most responded to of, of all options, right? And I would describe this as this is where we like to pick and choose. Uh, you can, might think about the phrase uh, being like a theological mixtape, bespoken spiritualism, uh, or we have another common phrase that we typically just describe, spiritual but not religious. These are ways in which we kind of pick and choose. Like, I like this about Jesus. It was really cool that Jesus helped feed the poor. I love that about Jesus. But Jesus seemed to have a very high ethic on sex and sexuality and pornea and using our bodies indiscriminately however we want. I don't really like that part about Jesus. In fact, I'm going to probably deny the fact that even Jesus said that. Or you have other people that are like, I really love the fact that Jesus had this high morality, but I didn't really like the fact that Jesus cared about people that were poor and lost and broken and the immigrant, and I'm going to dismiss those things. So I will pick and choose various elements of what I like about Jesus, what I don't like about Jesus, what I feel comfortable with Jesus, what I don't really feel too comfortable with Jesus, those elements that I find deeply offensive and those others that I find like, I love this about Jesus. Welcome to America right now. Christianity. But like I said, a pick and choose bespoken spirituality cannot save you in the end. Because really what it is, it's an attempt to remain and retain a degree of not only autonomy, but power. It's a power grab. It's the same heart that was in the Sadducees and the Pharisees. 
and Caiaphas. We are power-hungry people that want to retain control. And what I'm trying to tell you is that the heart of the gospel is I have to be willing to let go of that control, to recognize that my soul, my desires, as strong as they are, may be misshapen, (laughs) may be subject to viruses that have distorted me. Maybe the GPS that I try to live my life according to is actually not the true magnetic north. And maybe it's off. But how do I know? I can keep going on my pathway of holding on to my own GPS and my own desires and my own longings. And what Jesus says is that is a path to destruction. Or I can let go of all of that and say, Jesus, I cast myself at your feet and trust and believe you. So number one, we have selective belief. Number two, we have denial or ignorance where we straight up just choose to not believe. I will not believe that this actually happened. There's no way. I don't believe in miracles. I can't believe in miracles. We don't see miracles in our day and age. So there's no possible way that they had miracles back then. We know now much more with greater intelligence that miracles just don't simply happen. Those people way back then, 2,000 years ago, they were primitive and they were so subject to thinking really weird, fanciful things that fairies existed and there are trolls and there are like weird entities and forces behind everything. So we're not that way anymore. We now know certain facts. And I would suggest that that level of certitude, man, that just, that just breathes a degree of, of arrogance and maybe even violence. So anytime when we hold on to with certitude, the sense of like, I know what's right, oftentimes turns us into very vicious and aggressive and angry-styled people that are really very exact, very exact opposite of compassionate or empathetic, which is the odd irony in which we live in, in our world today, which has really worked hard to try to be dismissive of a God over everything and that this God has a design and purpose for everything in our lives and then move into a world where we're, we're the ones who are really truly in control. But what you end up having is just a whole lot of violence, very similar to Caiaphas, all plotting with an agenda, how to get rid of Jesus. And then lastly, I think the only other option is repentance and belief. Just, just like what it tells us in the story, that some were there and they saw Jesus. They saw the miracle that he did and they devoted themselves to Jesus. And in closing, that's what I want to invite us to really think about and consider. So I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to have us all stand as of right now. And we're going to just respond in closing and just considering the fact that we really have some options. And these options are here before us, and they're all directly linked to this larger question of what are we to do? He performs many signs. He's done this. It's not open to question. It happened. But what are we to do? Believe? Create mixtapes? Or cast ourselves in an act of repentance and worship before this Jesus? So I want to lift up our voices as we just sing what a wonderful name it is that we have in Jesus and declare that boldly, loudly. If you're here this morning, maybe you're not a Christian, it's an opportunity for you to maybe even in your own heart say, God, I confess my sin, my brokenness, my attempts, as feeble as they are, to try to make a life for myself. Just confess those things before him and then bring your heart back to him. At the very end, we'll give you guys some time if you need some prayer for anything that's going on. We'd love to pray with you. Let me pray right now and let's just lift up our voices in closing. So Jesus, again, even now, we just confess to you that you are the one true God 
loves us. You are our Father, your Son, and your Holy Spirit. Alive, at work, in this place. Lord, as we uh, lift up our voice in confession of your greatness, um, receive that, God, as just an act of declaration, of worship, of praise. And God, let it change us to become people that are radically devoted and molded and shaped uh, as people into your image in this world. 